to A Correction Podcast. I'm your host, Lev Moscow, and today we have a really special show. We've got three guests. Let me introduce them, and then I'll introduce the topic. We've got Tabari Bomani, who is a principal at the Nelson Mandela School for Social Justice here in Brooklyn. We've got Bob Lubetsky, who's a clinical professor and educational leader at City College in New York. And we've got Bill Stroud, who is the founding principal of two New York City public schools. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Delighted to be here. Oh, good. Well, I'm I'm happy you guys are here. Today, we're going to be talking about um, an essay, uh, a manifesto, (laughs) a call to action that you've all all co-authored called Looking Backward, Looking Forward. And it's about what what we can do to change New York City schools and and perhaps what we can do to change schools across the board, public schools across the board. So what I'd like to do before we get into your what can be done, I'd like to talk about who you are and how you all came together to write this piece. So like most people, I was sitting in my house, biting my, my fingernails to the nub, <laughs> uh, stressed out about the global pandemic. Being a remote principal, I really missed uh, engaging in education that included hugging my students and my staff and making sure that there was a safe place for people to come and be angry or be smart or be sad. And so I was stressed out about the globe, this global pandemic. And my wife, who is extremely smart and probably one of the best people I ever met, named uh, Lydia Colombo-Mani, she said, listen, I have a friend named Bob Lebeski um, Bob knows you. You, you, you. He's seen you speak a couple of times. He wants to invite you to have a conversation. Um, I told him what you have been going through and what you've been thinking about and your desire to transform education. And he said that you should sign in and speak with him and one of his friends named William. And that turned into a two-year conversation, lifetime, brotherhood, and a rejuvenation of a spirit that is committed to education being a liberatory process. And so because I talk a lot, I'm going to stop there and let my other two brothers jump in. Thanks, Tabari. So for me, I've known Bill uh, since the year of the flood. I, I guess we've known each other <laughs> since 1975 or maybe it was 82. I don't even remember. A long, long time. Uh, and have worked together over the years on and off on a variety of uh, things uh, that we each are interested in uh, and have talked through the years about um, what we think and had been talking about and trying to write something that would make sense uh, out of what was happening in the world, both at large as well as in the world of education, which is what we know, trying to follow the old adage about write what you know, write what your experiences are. And in the course of trying to write something, I became aware of Tabari through his wife, who was an adjunct at City College and and I consider a good friend. And Tabari is quite right, she's brilliant and lots of other qualities, uh, really smart and incisive. uh, And and, uh, in talking with Bill, uh, 
was thinking that we needed to enlarge the circle of conversation so that it included other people who had experiences that were not ours because I believe that we only grow through the experiences of others that are not our own experiences by having our ideas challenged, by being thoughtful, being asked to be thoughtful about what we believe and to explain what we believe to ourselves and to others. And so I reached out and invited Tabari to join our conversation. And as Tabari explains, it's been a nearly two year conversation. And Tabari actually underplays this because our conversations are weekly conversations, sometimes two and three times a week, right? three hours at a time. So that's a whole lot of hours to happen. I'm talking about 52 weeks in a year and spending nearly 10 hours a week talking. And we never run out of things to talk about that are interesting to us. And we hope are going to be interesting to whoever's listening in on this conversation. Some of the context when we got together, it was both the pandemic, but I think it was also around the time it was either during or the end of the presidential primaries. And there was talk about revolution, like because of the Sanders campaign and the interest in political change. What the three of us found out is that we come personally in our own lives from vastly different backgrounds and that we uh, had similar kinds of goals and experiences that were shaped professionally by our experience in the New York City school system developed a personal brotherhood. And as we discussed how this came about, we thought it really is sort of, it's a Frarian approach to changing the world, but through specific topics and dialogue that's sustained over time. And that in some ways it was relevant as a methodology to think about, is this possible for educators to be interested in or to have some um, ability to do in their own settings. So the, all of us have had individual experiences where we felt like changes possible in individual schools, but the system of the Department of Education or school districts sits like a weight and superstructure on the backs of schools and is something that we need to get rid of in some form, not just like tinker around the edges, which is what happens with every mayoral campaign and new chancellors, but that fundamentally that it can, it's a system that confines our ability to educate students in real ways within the context of this notion of revolution, that that cannot, that there are systems that prevent that from happening, school systems being one of them and how we think about the purpose of education, the values, around competition and individuality that happened. So the discussion started turning to what's the possibility of changing systems of education, in particular, the New York City Department of Education. And can I just add one last thing? I think it's important for us to also note that we were also uh, having our discussion amidst the Black Lives Matter summer. True. And so watching young people particularly, 
um, and diverse young people take to the streets and demand social justice in a way that was reminiscent of what those of us who are old enough saw in the 60s and early 70s or in some aspects in the 80s was part and parcel of the dialogue. It set the stage. It was almost the fourth person in the room or in the Zoom, if you will, while we were talking. So I just wanted to uh, add that. That's really important because that movement, which all of us were involved in in one form or another last summer, spring, summer, fall, and, you know, has since withered, which we had sort of anticipated because that's the history of how significant transformational movements become, um, become sort of, sterilized in certain ways by the structures that exist but it was a source of great optimism for the three of us and then as it developed as Tabari said the three of us have had various experiences in the 60s 70s 80s 90s about in in political movements and that one of the things that we noticed was sort of the pattern of how these movements get incorporated and be made rendered innocuous in some way so that the system changed because there's a focus on the individual and the individualistic ideology. But um, so is it possible to become involved in a movement that changes systems and would indeed over an extended period of time become transformational, which is not possible unless the fundamental structures also change? Excellent. I think the thing that I would want to add to that is that there's a kind of almost forced amnesia so that we don't remember what we learned in the 60s and we don't remember what we learned in the 70s. Nothing is carried forward and everything is born as if it's born for the first time from the head of Zeus, so to speak. And because of this historical amnesia, there's no reference point for any movement that happens to crop up. And those reference points are things that can be learned from previous struggles uh, for social justice and equity and uh, a human life. Um, And because there's nothing that's learned and nothing is carried forward, everybody's doing this again as if they're doing it for the first time. And there's the lack of historical memory is both shocking and also frightening. Lev, you're keenly aware of this as a history teacher, sort of the lack of historical <laughs> context for any of our right. studies. Right. Yeah, no, I, I, I think, so. I mean, Bob, you know, one of the things I was thinking about as you were saying that is that it's not terribly surprising to me, given the fact that we, we sort of lack institutions which would retain that kind of knowledge or would, would, would help teach people about the past, I'm thinking specifically. You need you need an international, and and there isn't an international at this point. And mm. there aren't strong labor unions at this point, and those those institutions were institutions which in the past I think helped remind people of what had come before. But um, what I'd like to do is I'd like to I'd like to throw out the the question you talk about the system. Maybe you could as it currently exists. Maybe you could talk about the the purpose of the current system who's hurt by the system and my my feeling about most systems including the, the, the public school system in new york 
is that some people benefit. Some people are served by it. So perhaps you could talk about, about that. If I could jump in, brothers, if you don't mind. You go uh, a couple of things that I want to lay out. And I might say something again later, but let's, let's lay out a couple of things, right? So the educational system is a social scientific institution that is set up to socialize people to the status quo and to the system that reigns. And if you're in America, it is a system of hegemony and oppression, right? Um, and so the system serves the purpose or the educational system serves the purpose of the system. I mean, that is, I, I don't, for me, that's a fundamental thing of, of understanding, right? And then uh, though there are those of us who have joined the system to move it in a, a, a different direction, even if by inches, right? But we would be engaging in folly if we joined the educational system, believing that it is this benevolent system that is set up to educate everybody in a country or a system that believes in equity. The educational system has never been that, right? It, that has never been its purpose. And anything that it does in that way has been strangled hold and dragged towards those purposes by educators who believed in education itself, not the educational system, but education itself being something other than what the system allowed it to be. Um, the second thing that I would say is I, I, from a Frarian perspective, everybody's hurt by the system. So if you're a rich white male in a school system that doesn't have to worry, or a school that doesn't have to worry about money and doesn't have to worry about anything, and you ride that system out and you graduate at the top of your class and you go into the best colleges in the world, you have been dehumanized by a system that dehumanizes the oppressed and the oppressor. Just that dehumanization will materialize and manifest itself in different ways. Right. So you can be dehumanized with a lot of televisions and cable or you can be dehumanized and be homeless like I just saw when I went to Baltimore recently. And so before we talk about like how who benefits, none of us truly benefit. Because in it, it dehumanizes all of us. Capitalistically, there are some who benefit rather than others. But I just wanted to see if I could at least lay those two things as foundational mm -hmm. ideas, if we all agree on those foundational ideas and then we can kind of move from there. Um, Tabari, if I could, you, you've brought up Paulo Freddy twice now, yeah. and I imagine some, some folks in the audience know who he is, but um, maybe you could tell us a little bit more about him. What, I'll tell you my perspective of Paulo Freire, right? So Paulo Freire was an um, educator in Brazil who did a lot of work with adult educators, especially those who were illiterate, right? Um, but what changed my life in terms of Paulo Freire was reading his text, Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And for those of us, a lot of us who are in college in the 1980s, who are coming out of college to go into teaching in the late, late 80s, early 90s, um, a lot of us was impacted by Paulo Freire's writing about Freire, by the Freireans who then came after him. Three things that I would say about Freire that maybe help put it in the right context why we keep referring to him. Freire, for me, like Fanon, started at a uh, foundation that made sense to me as an African-American growing up in the United States, living in Hollis, Queens, who was poor, that there was a system of oppression that existed, that both seen and unseen, 
that sought my dehumanization because there was profit in me being dehumanized. And that because that system existed, that there was a need to rebel against that system and transform it into a system of liberation. And that the people who could truly do that were those who were oppressed because those who were benefiting from the oppression or were actively engaged in the oppression were so dehumanized that they could not see the benefit in transforming the system. And then Paulo Freire suggests that the educational system as a tool of the, the system of hegemony did not treat those who were seeking to be educated in a way that they could truly develop a critical consciousness that could help them decide how to transform their lives and the lives of others. And so that the banking method of education where we pour in knowledge into empty vessels and ask them to regurgitate the knowledge that was poured into them, not only supported the system of supremacy and the idea of supremacy, it also removed any possibility of those young people developing a critical consciousness that could transform them. And so that's fairy for me. Could I, could I ask a follow-up then? You know, a, a few minutes ago, Bob, you said that, you know, people don't know anything in this country, that there's historical amnesia. How would a Frarian approach, you know, if, if we're not empty vessels and we don't need to, to learn all this history, how would Frary approach the, the education of, of people who have uh, historical amnesia? I, I think I want to say something before I answer that direct question, Lev. Thank you for the question. Um, and what I want to say is that part of the consequence of this historical amnesia is that we lose the way of naming things so that there's no continuity in our knowledge. It's almost as if the knowledge we have is self-contained and sealed off almost in, a, in, a, in its own container so that it doesn't seep into any other container. And that's also, interestingly, the way in which we treat knowledge acquisition as if it is something, Tavari describes it uh, as the Prairian notion of a banking concept of education. You pour knowledge into empty vessels. Those vessels then contain that knowledge and I mean that in two different ways. I mean, both contain in the sense that they hold it, but contain it in the sense that they restrict it to whatever container it's in so that it doesn't seem to have a explanatory effect on anything else. And that's incredibly dangerous. Just to take one very small example, and this will go to the question you asked, Lev. Sorry, it takes so long to get to it. I'm reading a book by um, Mahmoud Bandani, who was a friend of mine. I lived in Dar es Salaam for three and a half years. Mahmoud, for uh, a while, was the, um, was the executive director of the African Studies Center at Columbia University. He's since returned to uh, Uganda. He's a Ugandan citizen to the McCary Institute for Social Justice in Uganda, where he is the director and one of the points that Mahmoud makes is, this is almost by extension, changing the vocabulary of description changes how we experience something. For example, 
identifying the United States as a settler colony changes our historical understanding of the United States. We are a settler colony in the United States. We were settled by those who arrived from European shores, but the United States had people who lived there before Europeans arrived, Native Americans, and hence that change in vocabulary leads one to ask, so what happened to Native Americans who lived in the shores of the United States that are now occupied by Europeans? How did that happen? How did it happen that suddenly Native Americans who occupied the shores of what we call geographic America were then occupied by Europeans? What happened to Native Americans? Well, Native Americans were actually placed in reservation and became wards of the state. That vocabulary is important to use to describe the experiences of others. Giant it's outdoor important. prisons. And it's important to use by us in describing our own experience. We're all implicated in the lives we lead and the lives that we touch. None of us escapes implication from the language we use to describe others and the language we use to describe ourselves. And language betrays our thinking. And because it does, language becomes a key to trying to understand our experience. Brother Tavari has already described how the key, that key, what role it plays in our in our experience, in the ways in which we experience ourselves and experience the world we live in. One thing I want to connect this, Bob, to what you're saying is, which is part of the school system is our inability to both vocabulary, but in the historical context. Um, one of the things, Lev, that we've discussed through the months is it, and it, it's really a question to sort of to what extent there's an inherent struggle for freedom and humanity, but whether we're talking about the indigenous cultures or Palestine today, or the, the fact that we don't have any intimate knowledge about how people organize resistance against oppression and have, there's a, an inherent tendency towards freedom and liberation and what role does formal education play in that. But the fact that we know very little about those movements, I'm reading a book now called Black Majority uh, um, from the 1600s to the colonial period in South Carolina and how Africans and Af then African-American generations organized themselves and created their own culture um, uh, and way of living within a particular oppressive context. But having, not being able to connect with any of those histories does a disservice to us as we're, we're going forward. There's also, among the three of us, there's degrees of, um, of non-agreement about all of these things. For example, to get back to your question, Lev, I, I'm, I'm not, it's not clear to me that a Frarian approach is possible in the current educational system, which is one of the things that led us to the idea of 
how do we allow those kinds of spaces for experimentation and not experimentation with children, but experimentation on different structures that promote an education for liberation in an organized way in a social institution that, that would allow people to better understand themselves, their own histories, the issues that we have transforming the world. Uh, is it possible to create that kind of space as Tabari was talking about it and you introduced, you know, Freire was largely practicing with adult education and existing communities outside of a formal school experience to what extent that is applicable in the current world is something that we want to find out. So I just wanted to suggest, so I met Freire for the first time in 1982. I'm being a little bit facetious here. I met Freire on the corner of 111th and Francis Lewis with my dudes when we were drinking 40 ounces of beer and talking about how fucked up America was, right? I met Freire when we would sit on that same corner on, on Francis Lewis and Hollis, and we would begin to have a dialogue around the problems that we were facing as Black men in a country that sought the lives of Black men as if this country was on a safari. And no one talked about what degrees we had, or no one talked about what was the latest college class that we had come out of because none of us had come out of any of them. But that dialogical process uh, of equals is the same process that I experienced with these two brothers here. And so in 2020, I was able to recall what I learned in 1982 and what was inspired in me when I went to Hofstra University. And that is that it is the dialogical process in a democratic circle where people who understand that something is wrong. And what I will say about young people is this, they may not, they may not be able to give you the historical context of why we are in our current economic, political, social, or spiritual uh, desert, but young people know something is wrong. Young people know that they should not live in communities where people are getting NX grades or failing because the educational system around the country could not figure out that you can't have 21st century learning without young people having broadband or, or computers. And that a pandemic had to teach this to people who call themselves educated. And so there's a basis for this type of work and a very natural idea of how all oppressed people talk. You know, most oppressed people who engaged in their liberation didn't do it after they took several college classes. Sounds to me like what you're saying is that the system right now is actually not working for anybody, not for the oppressed and not for the oppressors, that we use the wrong language in our system. And that's really damaging because using the wrong language doesn't allow us to imagine or understand what's really happening around us. We need to teach different content. So far, do I have it? I'm sorry, the thing I would say, Lev, is not that we need to teach different content, we need to ask different questions. The different questions open up our thinking. It's questions that help us to think differently. Answers are not generative, questions are. The thing that I love about this conversation today, 
is that it reminds me of all the conversations we always have, the three of us, now four with you. That's right. Um, is we may not agree, but that's when learning happens. I don't learn much when I have people around me who agree with me all the time. I learn when people disagree. I learn when people bring new perspectives. I learn when I listen to Tabari talk about his experiences in Hollis, Queens. I learn when I listen to Bill talk about the disagreement he has with me. Gets That to me happens on the basis of questions you one asks individually and collectively. And Brother Love, the only other thing that I would, I would say that I want to be clear about, because I know I was the one who talked about both the oppressed and the oppressors inside the educational system. Just two points. And the first point is the educational system is working the way it was set up to work, right? There's no surprise that black and brown and poor students are not doing as well as their counterpoints. That's how the system was set up. What I believe is that if we pull back and look at what we see in America, right? Um, I said this to Bill and Bob the other day. You have all these people running around talking about they're not going to wear a mask and protesting about not wearing a mask. You have people willing to fight uh, to go outside during the pandemic and not wear a mask, even though people are dying from this global pandemic, right? You have these, I was going to use another word, but I'll say people storming the government because some idiot told them that an election that clearly wasn't stolen was stolen. The one thing all these people have in common is that 90, 99% of them went through this, the New York, not the New York, the United States educational system. And so we don't want any criticism about how the educational system is creating almost a group pathology in America that doesn't lend itself to critical thought or critical consciousness. We've had it over the last two years. And so people don't know that they're oppressed, especially those who are empowered or have privilege, right? But that's how dehumanization works. It makes you think that it's okay for you to storm a, a, a political building and the name of freedom that you've already got that's based upon stripping it from other people. That's called pathology. Also, the, this is not something that the three of us have talked about. I've been thinking about recently is, but relating to sort of the storming of the Capitol building, there's not only have people, has everyone gone through the public education system, which, and become socialized into a particular way of thinking and understanding the world and the values that are then internalized around material goods and power, but at, in their practical lives, we experience alienation and disparities in wealth and power that are becoming more and more apparent. People's response to that alienation, both because of their personal circumstances, their understandings, the, the history of their education, varies widely. So there, it's, it's obvious that one of the factors in this dissatisfaction uh, that we see in, in the right wing and the potential neo-fascist movement that's been highlighted in the United States and promoted in many ways by the corporate media is it, it too is a response to alienation. Figuring out how to bring people together is part of what we need to 
be doing together as a public education system? What I'd like to do is I'd like to, to shift to, to solutions and, and you ask in your paper, you know, what is to be done? So as you get into that, one of the things that I'd like you to think about a little bit or address is, is one, of course, what the purpose of your, of your new system is. And two, you know, what assumptions does your system make about the people in the system? Bob, you want to take that? That's too hard a question for us, Bob. You got to go for it. <laughs> <laughs> Great question, love. I'm, I'm going to take a stab. Uh, I, will, the, I will too when you're done. At the second question first. Okay, all right. So as I understand the second question, tell me if I'm getting this, that you're asking, you're, you're, you're kind of asking, how did we get so many anesthetized people and what are we proposing as an alternative to this mass psychosis? I am asking that. I'm also, you know, capitalism makes an assumption about human beings. Socialism makes assumptions, about, anarchism makes assumptions about human beings. Liberal democracy makes assumptions about human beings, what humans are like. What does your system think human beings are like? So if I were to ask, we're going to change that question a little bit. So what kind of educational process would serve development of the human part of human being, the part that we try and celebrate when we celebrate love for others, we celebrate when the love we have for our families, for our siblings, for our, um, for our parents. That, that Freire talks about love as an animating force. Um, and I think what he means by that is that um, unless you can love, truly love others and embrace that as a real experience, you cannot educate you cannot participate in it, helping to educate others. And, and what I believe is that that love has to be present in everything that we do and all the ways in which we express our connections with the students we work with. We have to embrace and love our students, no matter who they are, no matter what they think, no matter where they come from, no matter, and I mean literally, no matter what they think. Those who are right-wing, those who are left-wing, those who haven't really thought much, it doesn't much matter. If we're going to educate, help to educate them, we have to embrace them. And embracing people has to be an act of love. There is no embracing that as an act of hatred. And that embracing as an act of a love has its own momentum and has its own energy behind it. And it also is an act of fulfillment and belief in possibility, human possibility. And I think that's what I think we've experienced, the three of us together working for two years together over how many months and how many hours each week um, that we've experienced. I think I could say I'm much different today than I was when we set out two years ago to have these weekly sessions. And, and I would hope that my brothers in conversation are different because of what I've contributed to the conversations we've had. That's what education is. It changes both the educator 
and changes the person who gets educated because we all get educated in the process and the educational process is all embracing, all encompassing, and it influences everything we do. The other part of the question, I think has to do with what we're proposing. And if I'm getting that right, I'll try and take on some of that. I think what we're, what we're proposing is a educational system that is not Pollyannish, because I just realized that after my, um, my explanation about education, it may sound very Pollyannish, and I'm trying not to be Pollyannish, but it is something I deeply believe, and I think that you can't educate people you don't love. I, I mean that literally, not just figuratively. And uh, the act of love has to be an embracing act, and it also has to embrace what we don't know as much as what we do know and the do know has to be tempered with uncertainty because as they say in science, you know, we, we know for certain things in science until we learn more about something and then we now know more about it. So truth in science is, is something we stand on as, we, as it evolves as we evolve, as we and it evolves, and we come to know the world more fully and be able to understand the world more fully. And that to me is what education is. And that's the kind of educational system I think we'd wanna see flourishing in, in our schools. And I could tell you, and I'll stop at this point, one of the experiences I have that's most troubling as a college educator is my college classes that are made up of teachers. When I talk with them about possibilities that they can take on in the current climate, in the current environment, their responses, but they can't because their principal won't permit it because the superintendent won't permit it because the system won't permit it because they'll be punished because they'll lose their job. That's almost the perfect system. So you have people who believe things that may or may not be true, but actually trying to find out if it's true or not is really high risk proposition. Mm -hmm. Like how many people would risk being fired to find out if what they believe is true? And the system actually doesn't need to prove it's true or not. It only has to have people believe it's true. And so you've now suppressed experimentation, you've suppressed innovation, you've suppressed other ways of thinking about things. You know, one of the great things about the, and most oppressive things about the New York City Department of Ed, I think, is the hyper-centralization that New York City Department of Ed has experienced, and it's experienced these cycles of hypercentralization, the latest in the form uh, that looks like it's costing $260 million a year or more to pay people at the top of the pyramid to make decisions that somehow get transmitted through multiple filters until it gets down to the bottom. And like telephone, what you say that starts 
the cycle and then gets repeated through multiple layers doesn't look like what was said at the beginning. And so everybody points at everybody else when they try and find blame for the system. The system is almost perfectly made and it gets the results it gets because that's the way systems are designed to get the results they get. And it's really troubling uh, and, and challenging to try and figure out how to break through the system. And I don't just mean hyper-centralization, but I mean the system of what Orwell would call groupthink, mm-hmm. taught to believe the opposite of what reality is, but you don't even know what reality is because you can't attach a name to it yet. Lev, the assumptions embedded in what we've been discussing about education is, I mean, they're pretty fundamental. It's an interesting question that gets us to think more about this. But one, they're very elementary. One is that people are learners. Like we have the inherent ability to learn and to think. That two, that people have imaginations and that what distinguishes us as a species is our ability to create out of our imaginations. Third, that, the, that our consciousness and understanding is shaped by the material circumstances of our lives, whether it's um, the material goods that uh, we have in our lives, the transportation, the recreation, the entertainment, or whether it's the institutional frameworks that control, that, that confine our, our lives in a way that restricts us from from transforming uh, the world in a way where it's more sustainable, that there's an attention to well-being, and that we're all better off. So bad systems make good people do bad things. So how do we create? And as Bob's saying, you know, this this is a and Tabari, this is a per, almost perfectly designed system to get the results that it does. The focus on the individual, the focus on competition, the focus on getting ahead, the focus on material wealth at the expense of community, that, that what we need, there's also an assumption that people at a local level are able to make better decisions about the, their issues and challenges and needs than superstructures that sit on top of us, like the Department of Education. So it would require a much more decentralized system. It would require a value of trust among the educators rather than command and control. And there needs to be a space for that. We don't have a model. Uh, We've called this various things, education for liberation, education for democracy. In that conversation, it became clear to me that with the three of us in that sort of being challenged is that democracy is not a thing, but it's a process. Mm-hmm. That it's the process of creating a community that attends to the well-being of the membership, not just in a local sense, but in a, a much larger sense. And that that process, there has to be a place for experimentation in these larger systems, but who's willing to, ha- who has the courage to provide that space? Mm-hmm. We don't know. So what are, one of the things that we would like to do is really this is an appeal at, to the grassroots. How That's are we right. having this discussion together? Because there's not an answer to this. It's a process for creating a different way for educating ourselves. 
Can I add uh, just quickly? So I think when you asked that question, love, I was sitting here thinking like that's a very beautiful question, right? Because I think for all of us, as we look at how do we innovate, right? How do we transform the education system? At the root of it is what do we believe by about the practitioners and about the young people who are going to find themselves inside of that system, right? And so if you believe that they're willing tools of hegemony and oppression, then we're dead in the water and we need to find an outside parallel institution that can do this work with young people. But if you believe, as I believe, and I think that Will, William and Bob believe, is that there are beautiful, loving, uh, progressive educators floundering in the system. There are beautiful, loving, progressive superintendents and principals and cafeteria workers and school aides who are floundering in the system, right? Uh, school safety agents who are floundering in the system, right? I dare say because I'm a religious person, I, there might be a few even in Tweed <laughs> that are floundering in the system who want to do more than what they're paid for, who want to do more than what they see being done. And so what if we are calling on anything, if we are suggesting anything, we're suggesting an opportunity, a space, and some intestinal fortitude to begin the process of creating an innovative, creative opportunity to see what we can do. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really exciting. Bob, I, I, what you were saying about love, it, it's like there's that famous Che quote where he says, That's right. at the risk of seeming ridiculous, you know, a true revolutionary is, is, is guided by a feeling of great love. You know, to give context to the question, when we look at, um, I teach 10th grade global history, and when we look at political systems from, you know, basically the 18th century on, with each system, I ask the kids to look at five things. You know, what are the key words that the system uses? What are the roles that people play in the system? What are the rights and responsibilities that people have within the system? What's the purpose of the system? And then assumptions that the system makes on the people in the system. We've got, we've, we've been talking now for about an hour and just, I find that basically podcasts work for about, you know, max hour 20 and then people, you know, they've been there, <laughs> their, their subway rides, yeah. their subway rides to work and, and from work. So uh, we still, we still, we still do have time, but I want to focus the last the 15 or 20 minutes or so on, on really getting specific. So, you know, Bill, when you wrote me, what you said was that you'd like to, or maybe you already started the process of engaging with people either at Tweed now or who may potentially come to Tweed in the next administration. And I, I'm not at all belittling, you know, the idea of, of coming with frarian ideas or, or love as an objective. But I also think that, you know, it'd be difficult to have a conversation with the next chancellor about love and revolution. So I'm wondering in the most practical, in the most practical terms, tell me what you would like the next, the next administration to do to transform the school system. I'll, I'll start, Bob and Tabari will have additional um, ideas. One of the things that we've discussed is having um, 
an innovation zone of some sort. I don't, we, I don't know what the actual title would be, but a place where we can try out not only these ideas, that the school is the unit of change and that the schools need to have a degree of autonomy from the accountability systems and the curricula that currently exist and, and to have ongoing evaluation of that process to see what's working, what's not working. The, the system of control is not just like the institutional structure, but it's the accountability system, the curriculum, you know, what were the evaluation system for teachers, but that, that there's a space where that doesn't dominate the professional life of educators. So one is having that space. I'll stop with that. I, I'm, I'm going to pick that up. So one of the one of the things I thought Bill was going to describe is what I would call invert the pyramid. And Bill, you made reference to this earlier, but I just want to be explicit about that. The idea that decisions need to be made by those who are most closely involved in enacting those decisions. The further away from the enactment of decisions that they're made the more likely it is that it'll be harder to innovate. It'll be harder to figure out exactly what you should do or what the intent is. It's also much more difficult to be innovative and much more difficult to be spontaneous. And those characteristics are necessary when you're working with human beings in social systems because with that spontaneity uh, of response, a teacher actually can't teach in a classroom. So uh, the other thing I would say is, I mean, Bill's already touched on um, the school as a unit of change. I, I also want to address the classroom and, and the teacher, what happens between the teacher and the student as being the core of what education is about and that that core has, needs to be touched in multiple ways. We have the equity for all um, emphasis and, and the attempt to try and address equity as an issue. And I'm not trying to belittle equity as an issue. It's a real issue and it really needs to be addressed. The problem, however, is to try and address it in really concrete, specific ways that don't steal from the intent, the inherent power and force of the idea and of its enactment. And that's a bit more complicated, I think. The other thing that's related to a, a different structure. So when we're talking about systems, we're talking about what are the different structures Right now, the decision-making and policy of dis school districts or the New York City Department of Education is determined by a group of administrators who then become functionaries to the bureaucracy and the existing structures of power. So if we were to, if we're trying to create a, a system and experimenting with models, can there be a decentralized system where schools have representatives to groups that become a network of both decision makers, implementers, site-based uh, educators that, that are not removed from the day-to-day -day life of 
of schools and educating children that this notion of a separate executive body needs, needs, to, needs to change and that can we create a model and, and document this to what extent it would work that the central structure in a decentralized system would have some form of direct democracy where people were making decisions and then going back to their schools implementing these things, bringing the ideas back to a decision-making body of a smaller network of schools, and that there were network of school, networks of schools throughout the city. My additions are going to be probably focused on the heart and the mind in this instance. Like we need people of courage. That anyone who takes any chair in this administration or the next has to exhibit a level of unshakable courage. And so I can tell them where they can get this courage from. And for me, the way you get this courage from is that you remember your ancestral responsibilities. That you remember the nameless and faceless people in this country who have suffered and died. That you remember all those young people who took to the streets in hope to watch those hopes dwindle. That you think about George Floyd and the moments of his life that was stripped from him by a blue-suited assassin. And then you decide every policy, everything you do is either in the service of transforming this country from every student outward, or it is in maintaining the plantation. There is no other choice. There is no such thing as neutral education. There's nothing in the world uh, called the neutral policy. All policies, all decisions either burn the plantation down or move the slaves back into their quarters. And so, and, and Bob and, and, and Bill and I talked about this. You know, I spent 27 years as a teacher. I never wanted to be a principal. And then I got involved in uh, the fellowship for ESI and I ended up, because, you know, sometimes you can't avoid it, I ended up becoming a principal and I love being a principal at Nelson Mandela School for Social Justice. So one of the things that we did is I don't use the word unity, I use the word harambe, that we give out an Uhuru Award at, at graduation, that we use words like Ubuntu, because I also believe that the educational system needs new principles. And those principles should be relevant and come from the language and the heritage of the young people in the school system. And everybody, and I, I told my brothers this, everybody told me, you're going to be removed. You're never going to be principal of that school for a long period of time. And as we begin our eighth year, my response has always been, they can remove me any moment they want but we're going to do this while we can. And so I want, I'm hoping, right, um, that whoever takes the reins of the Department of Ed understand that they have an opportunity and a responsibility. And that responsibility is not just to the people who give them a the job, but to the ancestors that they represent, whoever their ancestors are. They all call out to us and that then they can invert the pyramid. Then they can create a... Uh, uh, 
uh, innovative zone. Then they can talk about democratic processes because they understand that they serve something more important than a mayor and a decrepit system. Then they can love all the kids and they believe that there's a pedagogy of love that is connected to Freire's idea of the pedagogy of the oppressed. I think I want to add quickly just one thing to what's at the risk of speaking after Tavares. You always sound like you have a mouthful of marbles. Thank you, brother. I appreciate that. It's all love. One of the things I would say that's critical, we have a COVID emergency in New York City. We've had a COVID emergency for going on almost two years now. When did anybody look to the community that schools are in as a source of strength, as a source of inspiration, as a source of connection for students, for teachers, for principals, for deputy chancellors, and for the chancellor. It's almost as if the community is an afterthought, if thought at all. And I think that's a significant, not just mistake, but it's a horrific mistake with horrific consequences. We have an explosion of COVID, that is touching communities in differential ways, and we don't really don't know what to do about that. Did we not forget that schools are supposed to be conceptually at least expressions of the communities that they serve? Right. So how do we not figure that out during this COVID emergency when everything is going crazy in our world? 